Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. A Ninth Circuit judge was under investigation for sexually harassing clerks. Amid the scandal, the judge retired, and now the whole probe has been called off. We'll be joined later in the show by senior reporter Natalie Rodriguez, who wrote about how the end of the investigation highlights a need for significant rule reforms that ensure sexual harassment in the judicial branch is adequately addressed. And later on, we'll end the show talking about the legendary Chuck Norris fighting to get a share of the profits from Walker, Texas Ranger. It's a suit one of our reporters described as the legal equivalent of a roundhouse kick to the face. (laughs) As always, I'm here with my co-host Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. But we don't have Bill Donahue today. He's out. And we're joined by a special guest host, Carrie Ben. Hello, hello. Hey, Carrie. Nice Bill there. That's good. That's like a requisite when he's out. Totally. And I'm also a Phillies fan. And I've seen all six seasons of Downton Abbey, guys. So it's basically like I'm the same person as Bill. Bill's right here. It's just... We don't need him at all. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, frankly, given what happened uh, in Philadelphia after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, we should probably check and see if Bill is even alive. True. <laughs> Maybe yeah. trapped under a flipped car yeah. or something right. at this point. I'm, he slid off a light yeah. pole he was shimmying up, something like that. I'm kidding, of course. He's not dead. Uh, he's actually not here because he's at his arraignment because he stole a cop car and drove it through a uh, a, a Wawa. So that's where he is. Yeah. I yeah. like that we're getting as many Philly-related jokes in as possible. Yeah, it'll be good. That, well, I mean, good. it got it, it it got wild down there. Maybe he'll show up in the offbeat section. I don't <laughs> he know. Might. We'll he see. might. He might. Well, I mean, this will probably be the, this will probably be the last of our of our football and Super Bowl talk. But Amber, since I don't want to exclude you, and I know you're not a big sports fan, right? Uh, and Carrie is the assistant managing editor. That one of her many duties is the sports law. Yeah. Well, can can we get like 30 seconds on the halftime show from you? What do you oh, think of JT? Sure. I've got things to say about that. Uh, I love Justin Timberlake. I was a little underwhelmed. I mean, we had shows where Katy Perry had left Shark and Lady Gaga like came down from the yeah. the sky and Justin Timberlake just came out in a suit that had like camo on it. It was, it was we- a little disappointing. Yeah. Um I, I feel like NSYNC and Aerosmith back in like what was that 2000 was better. Yeah. And also the second consecutive show that's been mentioned, so that's good for you. Um, <laughs> Carrie fits right in. Keeping that streak alive. Yeah, I mean, not to go all Trump on everybody, but it did seem somewhat low energy. I was like, is he <laughs> is he there? Is he asleep? I don't know. Uh, uh, it's because his new album's not great. Well, yeah, yeah that's a that's, that's a, the problem. And to- I'm saying this show, I as guess, a but... fan, I want it to be yeah, great. Sure. But, well, eh. Yeah, sure. Totally. We were just talking about how my celebrity nemesis is Britney Spears because I wanted to date Justin Timberlake when I was in high right. school. We're that age for that. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Um, it's a it's a hard transition here, guys. But we're actually going to talk about international investments now. And part of the reason we're talking about it today, Justin Timberlake sucks. You know what doesn't suck? <laughs> Carrie Ben. <laughs> Yeah, part of the reason we're we're talking about this up top, there's some news here, um, but also Carrie runs a mergers and acquisition wire here, so she's the right person to talk us through this story. What's going on, Carrie? So we're talking about um, CFIUS, which is uh, you know foreign investment in the United States is already kind of a tough a tough thing for people to do, but it's probably going to get harder depending on what Congress uh, decides to do about it. So it's the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, which Congress is looking at expanding the mandate of. Now I this is really a perfect storm segment wise because Carrie runs M and A, and I am of course the international trade reporter. Uh, my ears perk up when we talk about CFIUS. It does sound boring, but it has it has a really uh, important mandate. So so I think we can give like give the people just a broad sense of what CFIUS does. It's my favorite, guys. Yep, it's, it's a committee that was formed back in the 70s, and it evaluates foreign investment, mostly from mergers and acquisitions, um, with an eye toward making sure U.S. national security isn't compromised by any deal. So yeah. it basically wants to make sure like China is not investing in something and then 
going to use that money in some nefarious way against Well, the US, exactly. Right? And historically, they've been concerned with tech deals, especially um, because of the potential for, you know, proprietary information, that kind of thing, for foreign entities to get a hold of, of that data and technology. And it especially becomes an issue, like you say, when you're dealing with companies like China, where many companies are state-owned. So, sure, so the lines are really blurry anyway. Right. It's, you know, a, a, a Chinese company making an investment in a U.S. company is tantamount to the Chinese government yeah. owning a stake in a U.S. company. It's, okay, yeah. so we're talking about it this week. What's the latest thing that's brought it to, to the fore? Sure. So there's actually bipartisan support in Congress, which is kind of shocking. Let's take a pause right, right there to be like, what? There's bipartisan support People for something? People from both sides support this? <laughs> exactly. Um, so the Congress wants to update their mandate. So right now, the committee looks at deals where control of a U.S. business might transfer to a foreign person. But the idea being floated now in Congress it would expand the types of transactions the committee could look okay. at. So it would include things like joint ventures, licensing agreements, and actually even deals involving real estate. Oh, so much broader than Yeah. And that's something that people just haven't had to contend with. Um, so it also would expand the types of national security concerns that they're looking at under the current mandate. So right now, um, the committee would have no authority if, say, like a foreign company bought um, a piece of land that's right next to a U.S. military base. CFIUS would have nothing to do with that. But under this new potential mandate, they would be able to investigate. That's an interesting example because I remember a couple of years ago there was that. Do you, do you remember that company Rawls? Yeah. That bought they bought a wind farm. I think it was that was close to a U.S. naval base. But that's not. I mean, that was like a, an actual thing that they were buying, not right. just like not some just some, some real estate thing. So that's really interesting. Yeah. China never liked Cepheus. Um, and foreign investors didn't really like it either. And I can't imagine that they'll be liking it much more, especially since the president spent like two years like saying how terrible China is on the campaign trail. Right. Um, anyway, that's my own little hobby horse. What's the what's sort of the I mean, what's the outlook here? I mean, what we, we, we have a broad read on what the changes are. What are people saying? about? Sure. I mean, I think people are at this point kind of skeptical about whether the committee could even function with those changes. Right. Because it's already hamstrung by several issues. Um, it's one of the many regulatory bodies uh, in the current administration that are severely understaffed. So a lot of people just haven't been nominated to the appropriate posts. Mm -hmm. um, so they're functioning with a significantly smaller staff than they ha uh, should be because people just haven't been appointed. Um, and they've also seen a huge uptick in work in recent years. So deals that might have taken a month or two to kind of look over and decide yay or nay are now taking six months or more. So they'll also need a lot more money if they're going to expand this mandate, right? So that's like, you know, where that's got to come from somewhere. So part of the congressional idea is to uh, implement a filing fee. So any company that has to report a transaction and say, hey, you need to scrutinize this would have to pay this fee. But then there's worries about that in terms of like, people maybe just won't report if they <laughs> have to pay a, a right. fee, you know, that would be a percentage of the deal size or whatever. Um, so a kind of experts have, that we've talked to have said asking them to modernize the mandate and take on even more when they're already like have a, the budget is tight and the staffing is even tighter. Yeah, may, I was going to say that's a, that, that's a pretty classic U.S. government move, like make, make a move to like beef up an agent well, and, and a, a committee's mandate and be like, oh, wait a minute. You, I, I assume there's is there some budget outlay in the bill? There must be. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. So let's say we cut through this mess. We get the changes um, and they somehow get funded and are moving forward. What are attorneys saying that clients should look out for if that actually does happen? Sure. I mean, first of all, it's not really clear when all this might happen because sure. it's still just kind of in the initial phases. But our reporter, Ben Horney, had spoken to some attorneys and they have said that they're, first of all, just getting a lot more questions about the process. So yeah. it is on people's radar. Um, but they should be advi advising clients 
that um, they'll potentially have to report more deals, you know, to the to the committee. And the clients won't be used to the idea that they'll have to consider CFIUS when they're making a real estate investment, for example. Like, it's just not something they've ever had to do before. And same thing with joint ventures. So they'll need preparation on how to, you know, remember to do that, first of all, and then how to file because it's could be a whole a different group of clients. In, you know, so just not, lots more compliance yeah, here and exactly. like mindfulness of what to do with your deals. Totally. And then there's also this idea that's floating around kind of concerning a list of countries designated as like those of special concern, which, as we kind of touched on, would include China, Russia other places that would have Mm. sort of that state-owned thing going on. (laughs) Um, So it's not clear whether that will make the final bill, but if clients uh, run a business that's based in one of those countries or if they're looking to do a deal with a company from one of those countries, things could get a lot tougher. So that's something to definitely uh, be on the lookout for with your clients. They'll want to hear about that. Well, as Carrie has just ably laid out, uh, foreign companies investing in the U.S., that process is going to get a lot riskier for them. I'm here to talk to you about a different kind of risky investment, Bribing a judge. That is definitely risky. Amazing segue. Definitely (laughs) risky. uh, Still risky and particularly risky for uh, a Texas state judge uh, who was busted in an FBI sting last week uh, for accepting bribes from this criminal defense attorney in exchange for favorable rulings. Are you talking about a real thing that happened or is this just a law and order episode? No, this happened. And when I was researching the story, first of all, it's really hard to like... um, talk about this in a way that's not like a morning zoo radio voice. We got a wild one here from Texas <laughs> State Court. Judges accepting bribes. Uh, no. Uh, the judge in question here is uh, a man named Rodolfo Delgado, and he is currently the presiding judge for the 93rd District Court for the state of Texas, so Texas State Court. And according to the FBI, he has he has been up to some stuff. Um, there were uh, documents that were filed by the feds in Texas court this week um, that reveal this sort of long bribery arrangement stretching back all the way to 2008. Where That's crazy. 10 years. Delgado would accept bribes ranging from anywhere from like $500 to more than $5,000 from uh, this attorney. And in exchange, he would give out favorable rulings or get this guy's uh, clients out of jail in an expedited process, all kinds of stuff. Come on. This is, this is crazy. This is like the textbook for what you would think of as bribery of a judge. Yeah. It's literally just, let me hand you a stack of cash and you give me a good ruling. Also, I kind of find it hilarious that he was taking like $500 bribes. Well, I mean. I mean go big or go for home, For a guys. small ruling. Well, I, I mean, mean, that's how it know. started. And these things, you know, climbed a little bit. I'll, 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 I'll get back into, let's, let's, let's get back into it a little, a little bit deeper. So Delgado and this attorney had had this arrangement for many years. Um, but the FBI got wise or, uh, you know, started investigating the judge around November. November 2016. I don't, it's not exactly clear how they got tipped off or anything, but about a year ago, this attorney, this this attorney that he was um, accepting bribes from, uh, turned and uh, became an FBI informant, wow. uh, basically. And the inciting incident for his arrest last week was a sting operation. It was like a, they... Did they like wire up the yeah, attorney the whole nine they, yards? They, they, this they, is like they, a spy movie. Yeah. The attorney was there. They met, they arranged to meet outside a restaurant in Texas and the attorney texted the judge. He said, come out to the car and he's in there and they basically, he basically said, I'm here to, I'm here to do crimes with you or something. <laughs> right. Not, that's not a direct quote, but... I'm picturing the FBI guys in like a, a baker's van or yeah, something definitely. around the corner. He gave him the money and like they had a verbal exchange of exactly what the money was for and later that day, um, Delgado did uh, put the attorney's client on bond. Um, then something kind of funny happened. Two weeks later, uh, Delgado, the judge, 
I guess, appeared to become aware, maybe, of what was going on. Yeah. Maybe he got some calls or something, and he actually texted the attorney back, and he tried to post facto like mask the bribe as like a campaign donation campaign he said oh he sent him a text that said i'm paraphrasing that said oh i actually need campaign donations by check not cash i hadn't opened the envelope until now oh sure you you can see someone like frantically trying to sort of put their bribe toothpaste back in the tube this is like the bribery equivalent of my dog ate my homework Uh, like it's that a little bit yeah and so i'm you know the horse was well out of the barn at that time and he was all right so the judge is arrested what does he say about this now we're very early on we're in the very early going here he was only arrested on friday so there's lots of it it appears to be pretty open and shut i'm no expert uh but we'll see uh his attorney said um, he, he told our reporter who was covering it that he thought the facts of the case didn't actually support a violation of the law that Delgado was charged with breaking the law. It's this weird wording. It said it, it forbids bribery for a federal program involving a grant, contract, subsidy, loan, guarantee, insurance, or other form of federal assistance, which I thought was an odd. I'm not an expert on the, on those statutes, but like a program seems a weird. I'm sure it's just like a term of art or something, but that was interesting. It also has the, I mean, I don't know any enough about this case either. We're just talking about it now. Yeah. But it does seem like a stretch that the attorney's making to be like, well, I it's know. pretty open and shut. But I don't know if you read the statute <laughs> in this way. This technicality is yeah. totally means he's going to get off scot-free. Anyway... You know, we like to do these stories as as though there's some kind of cautionary tale or something. I I mean, if you don't know the cautionary tale here, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and I, I would w- like to think our <laughs> upstanding listeners of the Pro Se podcast are just going to take this one as yeah. um, maybe not le- a life lesson, but just a reminder. And if I can opine for just a second, you know, there are there there are principle there are principled objections and critiques to be made of our of our bail system in this country and if cash bonds are doubly punitive and things like that, and that's fine. But this is not the way to go about redressing those things. Don't uh, don't be handing out envelopes of cash to judges, maybe. Or, or do so at your own peril, in this case. Ninth Circuit Judge Alex Kaczynski was under investigation for misconduct after allegations surfaced that he showed female clerks pornography and engaged in other lewd conduct. But that probe has been halted now that the judge abruptly retired. What does the abandonment of the investigation mean for the future of sexual harassment inquiries? We're joined today by senior reporter Natalie Rodriguez to talk us through it. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Natalie. This is um, a really sad one we're talking about. So I know there's been a lot of sexual misconduct stories in the news. People maybe have heard about this one before, but have forgotten sort of the details. Can you set us up with what happened here? Yeah, so uh, this one really broke in early December when the Washington Post came out with a story where six women, including some former clerks of the Judge uh, Kaczynski, who's a Ninth Circuit judge, uh, they came out with allegations that he was very inappropriate, you know, would would call them in to show them pornography on his computer and would say very inappropriate comments. So Uh, basically all the the grossest things. Grossest things, yeah. Um, so that broke and very quickly, you know, the judiciary kind of stepped up to the plate and within a week had called uh, for an inquiry. 
um, which, which we talked about this on the podcast. And when that happened, I remember saying like, oh, thank goodness. Like, at least we're going to get some some resolution here. We're going to look into this guy and see what happens. So yeah. And Chief Justice uh, Roberts, he sent it right away to the Second Circuit instead of the Ninth Circuit so that there would be at least, you know, a, a more confidence in, impart- in impartiality yeah. about the, the investigation. Um, unfortunately, though, Judge Kaczynski retired almost right away, within like two weeks of the allegations surfacing, and that effectively killed inquiry. That investigation ended this week, but not in a way that's really going to make anybody happy about it or give people a lot of closure or comfort, right? So what happened this week? So yeah, so this week, uh, the Second Circuit came out with its report on the investigation, and it basically said that since he's retired, they they don't really have um, any way to punish him, so there's no reason to go on with a probe. So they really didn't get very far then. I mean, this only... It had gotten kicked to the Second Circuit, it had barely started, and then all of a sudden he retires. So they basically did nothing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, what I'm hearing from some sources is that, uh, you know, they hadn't even really gotten to speaking with victims. We were, when we were discussing even doing the story, we were kind of puzzled at the idea that, you know, as you said, the the court took it seriously and was looking into it. And then when he retires, it's basic, it's basically all erased now, and it doesn't seem like a satisfying conclusion to anything. What's the reaction been among, you know, the legal community. Uh, frustration, mostly, yeah. although not... I feel frustrated right here on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that seems crazy. Yeah. Right. Although not surprised, because this happens yeah. a lot, it seems, um, in general, with misconduct hearings of all, all, all types. Um, you know, if a judge uh, faces a misconduct hearing, if he retires, it ends. Yeah, you had mentioned, I think, in your story from one of the people, I believe, who made the allegations against him that she circled back and said, I'm not surprised. I expected this to happen. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So she said, you know, her low expectations were met, but uh, she still has high expectations that there will be some reforms coming. I mean, this is really tough, right? Because you have all these people that think they're going to be able to tell their story and have it taken really seriously. And then the accused person can just be like, uh, I'm, I'm going to get out of here, guys. Like, this is over now. It just doesn't seem like what we want to see happen. So are there changes that might come out of this because I think we're probably not the only people sitting around talking about this and saying how unsatisfying this is. Yeah, so it's hard to see if changes will happen, but there are people calling for changes. Um, you know, one of the reasons the probe ended was that in in many ways the council doing the inquiry, their hands were tied because the law that um, that gives them jurisdiction and authority to look into the matter and to, you know, provide, meet out a punishment if there is a worthiness to the claims, um, you know, it, it, the only punishments can be censure, removing you from a case. And so that's right. it. You're so if you're retired, yeah. so they can't not, do anything. It's not like they can take away your pension as a judge, which it, you'd still have if you retire. Exactly. They can't so do stuff like so that. some people would like to see um, maybe the the, the federal law, which was uh, done in 1980, uh, be revised and, and, and given more teeth. Uh, you know, a lot of these judges still receive pensions after the fact, uh, even if it, after they retire. So, you know, they would like to see a pro be able to keep going. And if the f- claims are found to be valid, for, for there to be some sort of consequence for the judge. So the other thing that's grown out of this is criticism of the structure of the judicial workplace um, because it's particularly vulnerable to these incidents. So what's the deal there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of it's kind of tied together with with the original allegations and accusations, which, uh, you know, a lot of the accusers banded together and and they're calling for greater change. Um, You know, part of the problem that these allegations didn't come out quickly enough was that 
clerks and and court employees are bound by very strict confidentiality provisions. Hmm. And up until recently, there was no mention of sex harassment as, and whether that was bound up in those confidentiality. This is really similar provisions. to what we've seen more broadly, where women will have to sign NDAs yeah. in, in settlements over sexual uh, yeah. harassment. Although it, 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 this was yeah, here it's just like baked into your, yeah. into your job baked description. In. Or they thought it was baked. Or in. Well, they, they yeah. felt that way. Yeah. yeah. So the judiciary, you know, really has started to step up um, you know early on the the there were amendments made to the Clark handbook to make explicitly sh- clear that you know sex harassment is not covered covered under this this confidentiality provision it's really interesting just because like nobody would argue that like you know sort of sh- publicly shaming people who do this kind of stuff out of their jobs is a bad thing but to your point about the structural problems there is and it, it, it's gone with all these stories, not just this Kaczynski story. It's like, what's next, you know, in terms of, you know, erasing the structure that leads to stuff like that? Right. Yeah. Well, and especially I feel like if the judge in this case is really seeing no consequence, then what deterrent is there for other people, right. you know, yeah. other judges? In especially this when we think about um, we're in a time period now where I think it's more judges than in recent history are close to where they could take like senior status. A lot of them are close to retirement anyway. So if the only thing you're going to face when you're you're maybe thinking about retiring anyway is just being like, all right, see you guys later. I'm good here. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, there's not much to that. So I can see why women would be really upset about like you said, this, this not having enough teeth to really yeah. address it. That's true. Although, um, you know, one source I, I was talking to, Deborah Road, who's a, a Stanford Law uh, professor and, and really an expert on sex harassment issues in general, um, you know, she felt some hope that because of the Me Too movement and kind of this general spotlight put on sex harassment, that um, even, you know, judges that, that managed to escape a, a full-on probe or inquiry will face consequences in that, you know, their reputation is going to get a hit. Like, she doesn't expect, uh, you know, Judge Kaczynski to end up at a at a top law firm as of counsel, although you never know. I, yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say, I don't know. We'll never, but yeah, we'll, yeah, it remains to be seen. So, yeah, other than those professional reputation issues we've talked about in this conversation a push for reforms. Has anything started? Any little seeds we should know about? Definitely. There's been uh, a push uh, by some 600 former clerks and law professors. Uh, it's no small amount. No small amount asking for, uh, you know, revisions to the, the clerk guides and employee handbooks, uh, you know, to, to make clear, uh, you know, that sex harassment uh, it won't be tolerated. And also to put in a uh, provisions for uh, having a reporting system. There isn't one right now. That's something that, you know, many businesses have, but the judiciary doesn't have. Um, You know, and and it does seem that there is some, you know, positive uh, movement going on in that. Chief Justice John Roberts, he formed the Federal Judiciary Workplace Conduct uh, Working Group uh, just this past month. Um, and that's really, they're, they're, they're going to look at the sex harassment issue in the context of the court system and really try to find ways to improve it. Um, so people are hopeful about that, although, you know, on, on, on the other side, they're also concerned that, the, you know, it, it's a very insular group that's doing this. Sure. It, it's other judges. And, and they'd like to see more voices, um, voices from former clerks, voices from employees, uh, you know, have a say in, in helping to guide these new policy initiatives. This sounds like a lot of things we talk about on the podcast where it's a really big issue. So 
these discrete things are going to be hard to make people happy because they move so slowly and there's a lot to still work out. Exactly. Thanks for talking about all of it with us, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Guys, we like to end the show with something offbeat. And as promised in the up top, I want to talk about Chuck Norris today. I mean, we all do. Let's just start. I always I mean... want to talk about Chuck Norris, guys. So what's he up to? For anyone who doesn't know, television actor and film star Chuck Norris, he sued CBS and Sony for $30 million on claims that they broke a contract that promises to share about 23% of the profits from Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. Which is what most people probably remember him from. I think so, yeah. I mean, I was a big fan of Sidekicks. Did anyone ever see that movie with Jonathan Brandis? It's a karate movie. Oh, Sorry. I remember that one. Yeah, sure. I think like Joe Piscopo is like the uh, Great. enemy, is like the, is like the bad guy yeah. Jojo. Sounds He's like an amazing right. movie. It's awesome. <laughs> I need to put anyway, it on my watch list. That's so... a digression. I don't know. I don't know what the royalty <laughs> stitches on Sidekicks but maybe that's a well, case for another time. There's a lot of details in this one I like. That's yeah. why I wanted to talk about it. So first up, Chuck sued through his company, Chuck, which is called... He's, 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 he's like your friend. <laughs> I feel like he's my friend. <laughs> okay. He sued through his company, which is called Top Kick Productions. Well, of course it which is. Which I love. Yeah. Natch. Why not? Um, Natch. So here's what happened. According to the complaint, the show's primary distributors ripped him off by making um, the show available for streaming on demand which you know uh -huh. it's really popular now so Whole they, revenue stream they did that without sharing any of the revenue with chuck norris okay it's about to get dangerous up in here yeah and there's a clause. you do that at your own peril <laughs> that's CBS. right that's right and there's a clause in his cbs contract back from 1993 the distribution agreement that says he was supposed to get these ongoing royalties so um he sued them for failing to act in good faith withholding information about how much money they were making on the streaming service um, and he also sued for a few other things. Uh, he says Sony ignored a license extension offer that was going to be worth about $10 million to give Walker instead to a Sony-owned, like, lesser uh, network. So, like, so a to, like, keep it in-house. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then the other thing, he said that CBS drugged their feet about approving a third-party memorabilia company that wanted to license Walker Texas Ranger and put out a line of memorabilia we could all have been purchasing all the time. You know who time? never drags his feet? Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I would have loved an officially licensed Walker Texas Ranger denim shirt. Well, who uh, karate wouldn't? jeans? I want some. And yeah. that's stretchy. exactly what Chuck Norris is saying. Stretchy that had jeans. they not drugged their feet on this, a lot of money would have been coming in. I just looked, by the way. Chuck Norris, seventy-seven years old. He is. He turns right. seventy-eight in March. Yeah. Wild. So one of the things I really liked about this complaint was that they alleged that the reason Walker Texas Ranger was so popular in the first place is the persona of Chuck Norris. So they have all this stuff about his life. And a lot of good quotes. One of them is, Chuck Norris's life, image, and brand are among the most positive and patriotic in the <laughs> United States. Yeah. America. That makes yeah. sense. I mean, you can practically hear the bald eagle flying yes. yeah. past the, the flag right now. floating. Yeah, so they talk about his time in the military, that he served as a karate I champion. I actually didn't know he was a Vietnam vet before I started I think it was Korea. Oh, Korea, sorry. Yeah, I think it was the Korean War. He is 78 so, years old. Yeah. I don't know if, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so he he did serve in the military. Then he was a karate champion. They talk all about that. All his film started roles. Started sidekicks. We and, all know I the mean, rap sheet. They actually mention sidekicks. It goes on and on. Um, and then it says things like, he's a man who, quote, means what he says. And then it talks about how Chuck Norris himself was the athletic, moral, and spiritual approach to life that helped lead these millions of fans to find Walker, Texas Ranger. It's, so it's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny that 
this is not like this is not a suit from Chuck Norris the man. It's a suit from Chuck Norris the meme. Yeah, yeah. well, we're, we get like- into that a little bit too. <laughs> so one of the things I started thinking about with this one was like, the show was on so long ago. I mean, it ended in 2001. Yeah. So we're talking almost 20 years now. And how is he making this argument that it's still popular enough for this streaming revenue to really matter? Yeah. And memes is part of the answer that they offer in the suit. So do you guys remember a few years ago, it was called Chuck Norris Facts? Oh, yeah. Do you guys recall that? This was Death once had a near Chuck Norris experience, yeah. Amber. Yes, it's stuff like that. Okay, so for the listeners that don't know, this went around the internet like wildfire. It was popular among old and young. Well, Everyone loved it. It's really funny because like, I feel like that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So, <laughs> yeah. So it was this just a series of memes where it was things about Chuck Norris and his like factoids that were about like faux virility and toughness, stuff like that. So Carrie had a good one. A few others I liked. Chuck Norris's calendar goes straight from March 31st to April 2nd. No one fools Chuck Norris. <laughs> yeah. Or Chuck Norris doesn't breathe air. He holds air hostage. I mean, guys, you don't sue Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris sues you. (laughs) I mean, perfect for this. But here's how it was described in the suit, these memes. Younger fans have bonded around the humor and anecdotes widely known as Chuck Norris facts. Wow. Which rely on a self-deprecating confidence concerning the machismo behavior that most men try to project, but do not genuinely possess or even understand. But you know who does? Chuck Chuck Norris. Norris. It's It's like a Chuck Norris fact right there. I personally... I mean, I'm looking forward to more litigation surrounding memes. I mean, I want. Oh, me too. I want. I want Harambe's estate to be fighting over his likeness rights. Yeah. I want, Bad I want, luck, Brian needs to sue somebody over copyright infringement. I want. I want Dat Boy to sue the unicycle company when it breaks and he gets injured. David needs to sue that dentist. I want. I want the distracted boyfriend getting popped for you know solicitation and insider trading. It's all. It, it's all. It's all out there. Things to look forward to in future offbeats, guys. Yeah, memes. Exactly, <laughs> for sure. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And our special guest host, Carrie. Bye, Thanks. guys. Thanks, Carrie. We have some other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Natalie Rodriguez, and our contributing reporters this week, Benjamin Horney, Bonnie Esslinger, and RJ Vogt. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you're interested in any of the stories we've talked about this week, please check out our website at law360.com slash podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks and see you again next week.